Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneers Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. There are lots of ways one might define a good leader, and many figures one could readily select as examples. But at Pioneers Post, we're interested in a specific kind of leader. We're looking for those leaders who are both trying to make a difference and doing business differently. These are the leaders treading that fine line between money and mission for the benefit of people and planet. So welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of PioneersPost.com. In this month's Good Leaders podcast, I catch up with Dr. Susan Actemel, a Glasgow-based social entrepreneur running Scotland's first social enterprise lettings agency, Homes for Good. Homes for Good celebrates its 10th anniversary next year, and for the past decade has been on a mission to reform the private rented sector, using principles such as kindness, friendliness and fairness, values that frankly you wouldn't immediately associate with the world of property management, to provide secure, quality homes for tenants that really need them, whilst at the same time running a sharp and savvy business so that landlords can successfully manage their investments. This is Susan's second big venture as a social entrepreneur, having founded the arts business Impact Arts, now a national charitable social enterprise, in 1994, and she ran that for 18 years. Susan is also a visiting professor at the University of Strathclyde, an entrepreneurial fellow at Goldsmiths College London, an investment committee member at SIS Ventures, and she was one of five commissioners who led the Commission on Social Investment that reported earlier this year on the current state of the social investment market in the UK. In the podcast, we look at the beginnings of Homes for Good what it felt like to raise its first £1 million of investment. And we also explore what influenced Susan in her early years. And we also look at the future, including plans for bringing Homes for Good to London, and Susan's plans on succession, and how to avoid being one of those founders who are dragged kicking and screaming from their enterprises when everybody else can see they've been there for far too long. So hello and welcome to the Good Leaders podcast. Hello, Susan. Good morning. Good morning. Well, let's get going and I'm going to go straight into my questions. And first of all, I would like to know what does Homes for Good actually do in a sentence or two? It's really simple what we do. We exist to make the private rented sector better. And... Within that, we also create homes for people who really need them. What's wrong with the private rented sector, would you say, before you came along? The private rented sector has just got this wide variety of quality and behaviours and values and lack of values. So mm. um, very fragmented, poor reputation, some people are exploited, bad levels of service. Before we came along, there was a almost complete lack of regulation. That's changed now. So when I started Homes for Good, it was from the perspective of being an unhappy landlord that felt that there was a much better quality of service that could be had. But also recognising that the, the, sort of, the housing crisis with housing association waiting lists, which has only got worse in the last 10 years, 
meant that there are lots of people on the, at the lower end of the income scales that were really having difficulty finding basic decent homes. So tell us a bit more then about when you started, why you, you've said why you started, but when you started and in particular, how, how did it all begin and how, how much revenue, profit and of course, because we're talking about social entrepreneurship, how much impact did you make in year one? What was What did that look like? Well, do you know, it's funny. One of the, the lovely things that's happened to me today is that I had to actually go and find the accounts from the first year to give you that information. Oh, brilliant. And that let me realise just how far we've come because you don't think about that until somebody mm -hmm. actually makes you think about it. So um, I, I started Homes for Good with a blank piece of paper. So as you know, I had been, I had developed a different social enterprise, Impact Arts. I had been yep. doing that for 18 years. So I literally started again from scratch. I did have a portfolio of my own properties that I put into the letting agency. So I had this funny situation of um, creating a letting agency, charging myself as a landlord commission <laughs> through my letting agency, and then not taking any salary out of my letting agency. So there was at the beginning, there was points where I was thinking, are you doing this the right way? Um, but started small, just myself out of a cafe. I had a part-time viewing agent that, that worked with me. And by the end of the first year of trading, we had turned over a massive 18.6 thousand pounds, 18,600 pounds. <laughs> made a 12,000 pound loss. And, but also by that point, I'd created three full-time jobs, including my own free time volunteering. Mm. And uh, we were managing about 70 homes or something by that point, by the end of the first year. From a social impact point of view, really what happened in the first year was us laying the foundations of all of our social aims and doing a lot of work on leading by example and actually then creating the homes homes for people who had a whole variety of different support needs. So what we really did in the first year was just started to walk the walk of everything that we said we wanted to do. So how long after that then, before you knew that this was something that was going to work, um, you were obviously creating impact, you felt something in your bones about it being a good thing to do. When did it start succeeding as a business? So I think I always knew it was a, I always, I knew straight away that I was onto the right thing. It was, mm. it was one of these, so what happened, and I've, I've said this before, um, when I got to the point, when I left Impact Arts, I wanted to create another business, but I wasn't quite sure what that was going to be. And mm. I just gave myself time to settle and see what, see what was going to happen. And when I realised that, letting you know the extent of the, the issues that there were with the letting agents that I was working with at the time my husband said to me why don't you create your own letting agency and he said do it the way that you think is the right way and I sort mm. of just saw it instantly really I know that sounds a wee bit dramatic but that is just the truth and I yeah. think it was when when we raised our first social investment the following year so in August 14 so I started Homes for Good in March 13 August 14, when I signed for the first million pounds of investment, that's the point that you know that you're on to something because the money, you've created a business plan that somebody's actually now funded properly. And that's when you say, right, this is the start of it. 
was that million pounds frightening and exciting in equal measure? It wasn't frightening mm -hmm. um, because it was to buy properties and you don't get that many properties with a million pounds. But yep. it was one of the most thrilling days of my professional life because mm. um, it was quite a long journey to get to the point of raising that investment. It was a real learning curve for me. And I visual so the way that I do big things is I visualise them. So I had visualised myself sitting in my lawyer's office signing all the legal agreements on the closing day when the money was going to change hands. I'd visualised every detail of it, including the pen I was going to use and what I was going to wear, uh, you know. And so, and, and I had to do that because it was such a it was such a hard journey to get to the investment. Um, so yeah, it wasn't frightening, but it was hard, but it was very very exciting. Yeah, that's quite a powerful thing to do to sort of visualise it. I remember actually that you um, you you came and pitched your business at a Good Deals social investment conference that we ran, and that was that was part of your journey towards getting there. Yeah. You didn't win. I think I think someone um, someone sort of providing bicycles in Africa won that that day. But I, th I remember being very impressed with your presentation. I, I I can't remember which year it was. Quite close, I think, probably to the investment that you got. I think it was. It would have been twenty twelve or twenty thirteen because by twenty fourteen we had the money. So, how does the business look now then, in terms of your turnover, profit, and impact? Are there what are the headline figures? Well, this is the lovely thing, Tim, and I'm really glad you asked me that specific question because I wouldn't have compared it. So, we've just completed year nine, so we're, mm -hmm. we're you know we're, or or we're we're going we will turn ten next year, I think, in March. Congratulations. Um, so the March 22 accounts um, show a turnover. So we, we've now got a group of four companies mm. within. The, so there's a sort of loose homes for good group. So if you just collect it all together, um, our turnover to March 22 was 2.4 million. Our profit was 175,000. Um, we have 28 full-time people in the team across the, the businesses. And we currently manage about 550 homes, which means there's probably about 750 people who are, who are living in our homes. And approximately two thirds of them are people who are living on low income, so low working wages or directly dependent on state benefits to live. Right. That's brilliant. How do you manage... Um, to lock in the social good with what you do. So I'm, I'm, I've talked to you before about social enterprise structures. I really don't want to get into the definitions thing, um, but I am interested in how you sort of draw the line in terms of your sort of your legal structure and your governance and that sort of stuff, um, because people have very varying views about you know what is good and what isn't. I mean, the most important thing is you've managed to succeed and you've managed to persuade social investors that you're kind of um, worth backing and that you're creating impact, which is fantastic. But without getting into too much technicality, can you just explain a, a little bit about how you've structured it? Really simple. It's really mm -hmm. simple. I, I'm not even going to talk about how we've structured it because... That is boring and technical, although it okay. might be interesting for some people. But if, if you're asking about how we've locked in the social impact yeah. across the different sorts of structures. So you know that we've got an asset locked business and then we've mm. got a couple of businesses that are half asset locked and I own half the shares. And there's all of mm -hmm. that going on. 
and I'm always very happy to talk people through why we do what we do because mm. um, it's entirely legal, it's entirely appropriate and it might inspire other people to think of a similar model. But there, for me, there are a couple of ways that you lock in social impact. Really simple. The first is your values, the way that you behave. Mm -hmm. Once you've identified what it is you want to do and the change that you want to create, it's your behaviours when you're running the business and your values that inform the decisions that you make. And if you stay true to that, that locks in the social impact. Okay. That's really simple. You, and, and you know, you, you don't need a convoluted article of association that's prescriptive on a hundred different points of social impact. You need to just commit to being, mm. the, being the change and, and making that happen. But if that's not enough and, you know, your investors or, or, or the people that are funding you want to know, there's then, it depends on how your funding is coming. So for, for grant funding, quite often you will need to have an organisation that is that, that you cannot take any personal gain out of it or you there has to yeah. be a level of control and that's fine. But from a social investment point of view, and I, I'm always very, very vocal about this, structure doesn't matter. What matters is in the impact that you create and your intention. Mm -hmm. Now, for homes for for across all of the homes for good businesses, we have covenants within our all of our investor agreements, all of our loans that I suggested. So I've put them in, right. um, or, or we've agreed them. We've agreed them, but I've prompted them. I've offered them. So, for example, in our housing portfolios that we own, a minimum of seventy five percent of our tenants must tie into the original aim of our business, which was creating homes for people in low incomes yeah. in receipt of housing benefit as an alternative to the lack or, or, you know, as a response to the lack of housing association properties. If we break that covenant, we're breaching our investor agreements. It's really simple. So we've put in, we've put in things that are basically, what we're doing is just making promises to do what we said we were going to do. And they're very formal promises and there would be no reason to be scared of that if you're committed to doing what you want to do. That's a really interesting uh, way to, to, as you say, lock things in without going down that convoluted route of changing legal structures. And it's something that lots of social entrepreneurs struggle with, I think. So it's really interesting to hear your solution. Um, I'm going to move on now a little bit from the business and I'm going to swap over to you and your journey as as a social entrepreneur first of all i want to know a little bit about your background so where were you brought up your education i know you've got an honorary doctorate um you speak two languages um so you're a pretty bright and 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 successful person um so tell me about how how that started what what what, what did susan actimel look like um at one year old where were you <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, I, so I, I grew up in a in a sort of working, mid, you know, middle working class of suburbia, you know, in 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 a, in a dormitory town in the the north of Glasgow. My my you know my my dad was hard working. He was a an engineer, um, mechanical engineer, and uh, I, the, I just remember being in a family, uh, you know, small, just seventies, typical seventies family. My dad worked really, really hard. My mum worked part-time when I went to school. Um, and I sort of went through life. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a safe upbringing that I had. 
Um, and I went through, I was very smart. I, I mean, it came out quite, I could see quite quickly that I was smart. Um, and so I went through primary school and secondary school. I would say I sailed through them academically. But by the time I got to 14, I was one I'd really uh, gone down the languages road. That became the thing that was my uh, real strength, my gift. And I was desperate to see Europe. So I, so I went, I did languages at university and then I started going to, to, to live in, in Spain and Germany from 17 years old onwards through to when I was 21, 22. And, uh, and, and I just did it, you know, I just went and lived alone in Barcelona for three months, but well, with a family, but I, I did things now that I would be terrified if my own daughters did. Um, <laughs> but, but what that enabled me to do, that experience, was I learned two languages fluently. I, you know, by the time I was 21, I spoke three languages completely fluently, not so much anymore. Um, it gave me a confidence and a, and a, and a bit of a, self, a, a self-belief in terms of I can learn new things. I know how to learn new things yep. and I know how to adapt, which was a really important thing for me because every business that I've created, I didn't know how to do it when I started. <laughs> um, and then I think my changing point was when I was 22 years old. So by that point, I had spent a year in Germany. I had worked with survivors of Auschwitz and that made a massive difference to my view of the world and my view of what's right and wrong and very moving and uh, powerful. And then I came in and worked as a as a, a an adult literacy teacher actually. So the line I went from languages and teaching. I, I did a lot of teaching in my early twenties. I then went into teaching adult literacy, and that took me to the poorest parts of Glasgow that I had never seen before. And I was really good at it, and I loved it. And that was what made me decide that I had a whole world of opportunities available to me in terms of my career paths. But I actually just instinctively thought, I love teaching and I see the difference you can make to somebody's life if you treat them well and kindly and make them feel valued and important and that they've got potential. So I decided to just focus on working within my communities to improve people's lives. I know that sounds quite evangelical, but that's just what I decided to do. It was the personal choice that I made and Impact Arts came out of that. Um, which was fabulous. <laughs> that was 18 years of, of a lot of fun and, 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 and doing a lot of really good work. Um, and then Homes for Good has come out as well. So um, that that's a, a race through the first 20 Amazing. years. But, but by 22, I had made a choice of what I was going to focus on and what I was going to let go. So yeah. I let go commerce, international business. You know, I was quite entrepreneurial, but I, it, I didn't really businesses that made money for the sake of making money didn't capture my imagination yeah and what what landed you back in your because i can imagine that having been to spain and germany um you must have had lots of opportunities potentially to live there so you but you landed back in scotland and then you you moved away from languages into the arts as well so was that just you know a happy circumstance yeah, what, what happened was that I had actually gone to live in Spain when I graduated, but I mm. felt ob- obliged actually to come home for family reasons. Mm. Um, I've often wondered what would have happened if I'd not felt that level of obligation, you know, where my life would have gone. But yeah. by the time I came back, um, 
I actually had spent a lot of time. I, I studied uh, drama at university as well as languages, so I was already quite involved in the arts mm-hmm. and uh, and spent a lot of time in Europe. So visual art is probably the thing that I love most, and that that you know that I used to used to draw and paint. Um, so by the time I came back, the arts was always something that interested me. And actually, when I was working in the adult literacy sort of stuff that I was doing, what I noticed was that people responded and flourished when we were doing creative activities more than they did when we were doing the more academic style stuff. So that inspired me to set up Impact Arts. Impact Arts basically was my three things that I wanted to do. I wanted to run a business. I wanted to make a difference to people's lives and work in communities. And I wanted a job in the arts. So that was how that came about. So I was going to ask, Impact Arts was very successful. I believe it's still going, isn't it? it abs- absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So why give it up? So I, I stepped back from Impact Arts um, during 2011-2012. I'd been doing it for 18 years. And, I'd, and it, you know, I'd taken it from being a sole trader, sort of starting it from scratch, the way I have with Homes for Good. And by the time I left, it, was a, it turned it into a charity that worked across Scotland probably had about 50 people full-time and a turnover again, probably of about, I think, just over two million. Um, I just didn't love it anymore. That was all. And, I mean, I'm so proud of what Impact Arts does. I have nothing to, you know, I, I stepped away from it in 2012 and I sort of, I keep a wee eye on it like a, a distant benevolent auntie that just keeps a wee eye and checks in and watches it on social media. And from time to time, I talk to the director, Fiona, um, and I'm so proud of they, they they just do more or less what we were doing ten years ago, but but much more of it and much better. So I feel that there were lots of things I would have done differently if I was in Impact Arts again. But I must have done something right because it survived all these these years later. I must have laid a good foundation for Fiona to then build on it and flourish in the way that she has with it. As a leader, then what? do you think has been your greatest challenge as a social business leader? I don't know if that's been with Homes for Good or Impact Arts, but what can you think of that's been the most difficult challenge and how did you deal with it? I think if if it's a single challenge, if it's the biggest challenge or the biggest challenge and situation, it has to be COVID. Mm-hmm. It has to be because, you know, that was something that wasn't on anybody's risk register. Yep. You know, when you look at a risk register, and I, I was updating ours yesterday, actually, when you look at a risk register, there will be something on the risk register which is about a pandemic. Yeah. But nobody ever expects it to happen because it never has in our lifetime. Yeah. And I would say that that was the most cha- single most challenging thing that I've had to tackle in business. So briefly then, what what happened to homes for good during the pandemic and and what did you have to do and i really really brief on this i know you could we could have a whole podcast on no this, yeah. yeah no no i can be really brief i think um so you know we 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 saw it coming you know we, we saw it coming down the track very fast and we had to all stop overnight and go home we did that a couple of weeks before everybody else hmm. so actually it felt like we were so ahead of the game. <laughs> Although, you know, looking back, you know, it was a long haul. What I was really pleased about, what, so, so the challenge was what the hell is going to happen because nobody could see 
into the future at all at that point. If you remember, it was just completely, we didn't know what was going to happen in the world. So the first thing I did was I looked at my family. I, I thought I have to feel, I have to feel completely safe navigating this. So I looked at my family situation and I looked at our family finances and worked out that we were safe for a long enough time that if our money ran out in an Armageddon scenario, the government would probably step in by then, so we were actually fine. So what I did was I stabilised my, you know, I, I, I got me and my family feeling safe, which allowed me then to lead well with my business. So I, I started with my own oxygen mask, to, to coin that analogy that I actually hate. But, you know, I started with myself and my family, and then with our business... Um, we, what I realised was we already had all the tools to work remotely. We had set ourselves up working remotely. So everyone was on laptops, everything was on the cloud, everyone was on iPhones. So in terms of business operation, there was hardly, we hardly missed a beat. We had lots of workarounds. And then the most important thing was leading a team. How do you lead a team through global uncertainty when you're not that sure yourself? Right. And let's move on then to failures and mistakes have there been any major mistakes that you would like to go back and change and what have you learned from those i i don't do you know it's funny because when people ask you about challenges and mistakes I think it depends, you know, I, I, I don't really have that many challenges because a challenge is something that you have to just work out a way of getting around. So it's the way that you view things. I haven't held on to, I had to really, I couldn't actually think of a big failure or a big single failure or a big single, single mistake that I've made that is stuck in my mind. I think that my mistakes are actually, the two things that I sort of jotted down are sort of the same thing. One is not following my gut instinct on something and recognising what gut instinct actually is. Gut instinct is not some nebulous feeling that you happen to have. It is your experience telling you something that is, it's not quite, you can't quite articulate it, but it's definitely past experience that's telling you that this decision or this thing that you're going to do is maybe not the right thing. So anytime I don't follow my gut feeling, I always realise that I made a mistake doing it. So I'm now trying super hard that when I have a gut feeling about something, I just, you know, make the decision accordingly. And I would say that the other failure that that I have made is not to have confidence in my own decisions. You know, and I think particularly in the early days of Homes for Good and with our first investor, I should have pushed back harder on some things. But I was probably a wee bit in awe and, and a wee bit naive about how to work with investors. And had I pushed through some of my decisions, we would have been in a much stronger position than we are now. And how about your proudest achievements? I, I Obviously, you'll have personal pr- proud achievements, but I'm talking about your business ones. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my proudest achievements are my three girls. They're great, yep. you know, and, and I know that it's about business, but that just is it. That's it. The, you know, I've got these three beautiful girls and I've got a lovely family and I'm really proud. I'm just so proud of them. Brilliant. My proudest yep. achievements in business. Um, 
quite proud today actually looking at year one and year nine and the difference that we've made that that, that this in itself is a bit of a proud yeah. day i would say that there are there are there are two or three things um the day that i got my honorary doctorate from Strathclyde, which is my university that was the that was a really really proud day um i was completely unaware of the the pomp and ceremony and i actually didn't appreciate the honor that it was until i got there and i saw it um i mean i signed the book the person that had signed it before me was Billy Connolly, so <laughs> um, you know, that was a that was a fabulous day. And and then in twenty eleven, um, when I won the Ernst and Young Awards as a social entrepreneur, um, you know, the Entrepreneur of the Year Awards, and I won the social category in twenty eleven, and that was my pivot year. I mean, I, by that point, I knew that I wanted to leave Impact Arts, and I sort of had in my mind that I wanted to go into property more. Um, and I deliberately put myself in what what felt like the lion's den of a very uh, you know, the big time with Ernst & Young. That was a very proud moment when I won that award. Um, but I think generally, I do feel quite proud of having created two social enterprises. You know, the, the, it's just an ongoing, I think that's a good shift that I've put yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. It, there's always a mixture, I think, of that almost imposter syndrome and then pride realising you can actually do it and you probably know more than a lot of the people that, uh, are you know like the investors who are investing in you often you'll you'll be better than them at doing some of the things that uh, you need to do in business yeah I, I don't I don't think I don't actually think I do have imposter syndrome I know it's talked about a lot there's sometimes I'm not as confident in myself as I should be but and and I don't think imposter syndrome is something that I feel so what qualities do you think make a good leader then mm -hmm. Being approachable and being human, being kind, uh, having a sense of humour, having the shoulders to, 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 to take responsibility and be accountable, um, particularly around difficult decisions um, with people, um, being clear and communicating vision, because when you're leading, you're setting the direction. So you have to be clear in communicating that. I think for any business leader, you have to have your head around money and around numbers and yeah. Excel has to be your best friend hmm. um, for a whole number of different reasons. Um, a lot of the business failures that you see and particularly the social space is when the leaders don't understand the money and they rely on other people to tell them. Um, I think there is something about being ambitious and assuming that you can make it happen but also tempering that with being realistic and being able to change course when you see that it's not quite going to go according to plan and if you were to ask your team about your best quality and your worst quality what do you think they would say have you done that in fact i have asked them but i was lucky i asked them this morning <laughs> i was lucky because alice my our chief operating officer is not well just now that's not a good thing but she hasn't answered and that is a good thing because she would tell me all my negative ones i think right um but <laughs> in in terms of what what i got so i just asked the senior team and uh, the, my positives are i see the potential in people um i have a strong vision i know how to create a sustainable business i know I've, i'm a very creative thinker i'm always thinking about community benefit and i can sell to investors that was right. the positives. My negatives were that I'm lacking in self-belief and that I jumped to the future too fast 
and that I create too many plans and don't give everybody enough time to do them. So that sounds about right. I've heard some <laughs> of those before, yes. <laughs> All right. So um, what's keeping you awake at night at Homes for Good at the moment? Do, do things keep you awake at night? Now that COVID is over, less so, I guess. Yeah, things do. Things are keeping me awake at night at the moment. We have the, 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 the very rapidly changing political and economic circumstances that we're facing at the moment. And actually the whole pestle analysis, you know, the, the whole external factors, there's just a perfect storm of challenge brewing for us. And the ones that are at the front of my mind are the the shocking political situation that we're in. And, you, you know, we've obviously got the UK and Scotland and the, 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 the political mess that, that we are living through right now is directly impacting on everything else you know mm. the way that covid was handled was politics were involved the way the environment's been handled politics have been involved we don't look after the poorest people in our country anymore that's a mm. political decision so and the, and it's really worrying me because we're living in a level of poverty and a, with a quality of life poorer than it has ever been in my adult life yeah so that's keeping me awake at night from a homes for good point of view, um, uh, the the the, the, the impact of interest rate rises on our business model and on a number of other social enterprises mm. could create closure of businesses that are brilliant businesses who are helping a lot of people live decent lives. If the social investors and the banks do not do something to to help the businesses through this. And that is really, really worrying me. And I think that, you know, social investment as a thing wasn't really around at the last economic crash. So it now needs to prove itself about how social it really is. Mm -hmm. That is worrying me a, a huge amount at the moment. It is right at the front of my mind in Homes for Good because of the, the nature of the social investment we have. Um, but the other side of it is the housing crisis for me. You know, while I am spending all my time trying to understand how we could possibly pay skyrocketing interest out of fixed rents, I'm also seeing 300 people apply for every house that we put on the market. Mm. So it is a time of, of a challenge, you know, and, and, and actually you were saying, what's your biggest challenge being as a leader? I think I'm coming into the biggest challenge that I've ever had as a leader now. So it's probably the right time to ask you a little bit more about leadership burnout in that case. How, how do yeah. you deal with all these pressures? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I would say historically not very well. Um, so I've had burnout episodes three times now. And um, the first time was a real shock. The second time was about 10 years later where I thought it was a relapse, but I just thought, okay, and that was actually um, just before COVID. And then the third time was just a couple of years ago, um, this time two years ago, after I'd taken the team through COVID and the business through COVID and we just finished the big issue investment transaction, which was um, you know, quite arduous for everyone involved. And it, you know, the signs of burnout are absolutely there for everybody, they are completely there. Um, and I think when I got to the third time, you know, when, 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 you, when, when you become ill the first time, that's it. The second time you think, okay, that's a relapse. The third time it becomes a pattern. Mm. 
Right. And so you really have to say, you really have to be disciplined. So the discipline is around properly understanding what makes you tick and why something is getting to you. And it might not always be the thing. So it might, you know, in my circumstances, it actually wasn't just work. It was all of the pressures that you can sometimes be um, put under by your wider family or the different things, you know, the different aspects of your life. So you have to have a discipline in investing and understanding and getting to know who you are and getting yourself better. But then going forward, you have to have a discipline of looking after yourself and actually not worrying too much about the future to the point that it makes you ill and recognising the signs. And and what do you do when you're in that situation then? And how, how have you got yourself out of it? So I think when you get to the point that you actually have burnout and you become ill, it's too late. And what happens is you, your brain stops. Well, this is my personal opinion or mm. my personal experience. I just think your brain shuts down and your body shuts down and you're suddenly in your pyjamas all day and you can't actually think. Mm. And it's almost like your body goes into deep freeze to just reset. It's like the way we know when your computer jams up and you can't get it to do anything and you just got to wait for an hour or three until it, it can boot up again. When that's how it's been for me and then and then you slowly get get better I think um, uh, I mean I think how do I handle it now you have to you have to catch it early you have to catch the signs early so if it's about saying you know I am not going to work I am going to just go away for the weekend or I'm not going to drink two glasses of wine every night. I have to just, you know, you just have to catch it. Or, or things like my, my number one sign is when I get grumpy because I'm not grumpy. So if I snap at anybody, um, that, that to me is an immediate trigger for me to say, why were you grumpy? Because I, I, you know, I don't, the responsibility of running a business, you know, Homes for Good's not big in the grand scheme of things. It's quite a small business. So it's a mm. lot of, yeah, I've got a big mortgage, but it's not a big, it's not a big job, really. Mm. Um, that I and I have no problem with whatever the pressure is of that job. It's just my job. It's what I'm paid to do. Um, but when you know, if I get grumpy, that is the first sign to me that hang on a minute, why are you snapping or why are you, or if I become disinterested in people actually when I think oh, I can't be bothered going to that thing or. One of the other things is that when I'm on Twitter and I think everybody's talking rubbish <laughs> and I'm just dismissive of everything, you go, Isn't hang on a minute, why, <laughs> why are you being so irritable? So, yeah, it's just about catching it and then just making sure you look after yourself. Yeah. Nice walks, going for a swim, just different, eating nice food, getting a sleep, all of those physical things that are so important. So, yeah, tell us about life away from the business then. I mean, how... how how do you find time for yourself your family what what does that look like what do you do what's your favorite thing to do to relax i you know i think you'll find most entrepreneurs that you'll speak to and social entrepreneurs it's like they go life away from the business what's that i mean it i it, 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 it is all consuming hmm. but um you've also got the luxury of being able to mix your personal and your you know your business life but what are my things so I love, um, you know, I, I'm really lucky. I've got a little house down at the beach and um, really lucky. Can't afford really to have two houses, but can't bear not to. So we're, we're, we are, you know, and, and it's somewhere that 
I go, my friends go, um, you know, my family go sometimes. And so I, I go down, it's an hour away and I just go down there and, it, and it's a completely different feeling. And sometimes I go down and work down there, but I've got two dogs. So sometimes we take the dogs down. I love going swimming, um, like going out for dinner with my friends. I think just connecting with my friends is, is important. And um, my latest thing, um, which is my pet obsession, is that I'm learning Catalan, which is oh, um, a language I promised myself that I would learn um, since I went to Barcelona when I was 17. And all my friends in Barcelona are Catalans. So my last question is actually, what's the next big exciting development on the horizon for, on the one hand, for your social enterprise, but on the other hand, for you, kind of right now or in the next five years, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say, or both, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I think I think for Homes for Good, well, well, a really interesting crossroads because Homes for Good is ten next year, which is amazing. So I need to, we need to get our plans in place for that. So I think. We have always wanted to grow to a thousand homes and that has been put on, that has been hard to get to because of COVID and, you know, now I'm going to have to spend a lot of time repackaging our financial model as a result of what's going on in the economy just now. But at the same time, there is massive opportunity for us to continue to grow. So we are definitely going to continue on the trajectory of growing to a thousand homes. Homes for Good London's on the cards. And we'll ah. be able to say more about that probably early next year, but that is definitely on the cards. Um, so yeah, growth, doing more of the 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 the, the best of what we do, and I, and I I still completely love the business, you know, with every inch of me. So I I'm not gonna say, oh, I've got a new project up my sleeve, or maybe I'm gonna step down. Um, what we are all openly talking about uh, with, with my with my colleagues on the board is my succession and that's not because I'm planning to leave but it's because it's healthy and as you said earlier one of the big problems that founders have is that they are dragged kicking and screaming out of the business that they founded when they're past their sell-by date and so I want to set a sell-by date and say okay so how do you know how do I go maybe from where I am now putting all my heart and soul into it to maybe being an executive chair and remaining as a founding chair with a chief op with a, sorry a chief executive replacing me and that's not about any problems that's about a healthy acknowledging might be that by the time homes for goods 12 it needs a, it, it's a different stage and it needs a different sort of person and I don't know that I don't have in my mind yet the next big thing because I think Homes for Good is a big enough and important enough thing. Going to Barcelona's going to Barcelona on a regular basis is my next big thing. That's your next big thing personally. I'm going to ask you now a, a series of quick fire questions, um, just to make a choice between one thing and another. I'm scared, um, but go. Some of them will be quite <laughs> awkward. <laughs> so, are you ready? Go. Start with some easy ones. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Starter or dessert? Starter. Sauvignon or single malt? Sauvignon. Planet or people? People. Profit or purpose? Purpose. 
tenants or landlords? Tenants. Tesla or Tandem? Tandem. Novel or Netflix? Novel. LinkedIn or Twitter? Twitter. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Liz Truss or Boris Johnson? Liz Truss because she was only there a very short space of time. Goethe or Gaudi? Goethe. The Royal Ballet or Status Quo? I know you have history with status quo, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know that? Royal Bally. Harvard Business Review or Dragon's Den? Harvard Business Review. A walk on the beach or a stroll through Barcelona? Stroll through Barcelona. Independence or teamwork? Independence. Confidence or creativity? Creativity. Culture or strategy? Culture. Evolution or revolution? Evolution. Susan Actimel from Homes for Good, thank you very much indeed. That was fantastic. What a pleasure, thank you. You've been listening to Good Leaders Podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post. If you like what you hear or have comments, questions or suggestions for guests, then please get in touch via Twitter at Pioneers Post or email goodleaders at pioneerspost.com.